So you have a room full of dogs and people, and you have them through a two-week experiment where one group is everybody's given treats all the time, another group, everybody's not given treats all the time, and then the third group, and this is the scary one, treats are given at random. The first two groups, treats are given all the time, treats are given none of the time. At the end of the experiment, all the dogs still shake paws 100% of the time. That last group, where all the dogs are in the same room and they're randomly given treats for shaking paws, only about 60% of the dogs maintain the ability to shake paws at the end of the two-week experiment. Say once more into the breach, dear friends. He'll still the wall up with our English dead. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Personal Wealth Coaches. Exciting for us, anyway. And that this is yeah. the Personal Wealth Coach. I'm Jake McClure, um, and this is Jeff McClure. Together, we are bald, right, and bearded. And bearded. Yes. Right. Uh, those are part of our disclosures. Uh, we are going to talk to you today about personal finance and macroeconomics and behavioral finance and other extremely boring to five-year-old conversations. Uh, so please get your uh, insomnia-proof uh, shorts on because uh, we're about to put you to sleep. <laughs> but before we do that, we need to put you to sleep with disclosures. Uh, this is the Not Personal Wealth Gauche. It is not just the name of the program, however. It is also the name of the firm of the two The two co-hosts are the principals of this firm called The Personal Wealth Coach, which is an investment advisory firm registered with the SEC to give fiduciary advice uh, in the best interest of the clients, which is not what we're doing on the radio. We can't give you advice that's in your own best interest on the radio because we don't know you. Or if we do, we don't know it's only you that's listening. And just because we give investment advice and are registered through the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC particularly likes us. It doesn't also mean that they dislike us. Those are good disclosures. So basically what I'm saying is that our relationship with the SEC is purely formal and it has no um, uh, fatherhood figure of them patting us on our bald heads. There. Um, we also are not giving investment advice on the air. We're giving education on the air because if we gave investment advice on the air, it would be illegal. Everybody would be able to hear it, and they would know what you were investing in, and that wouldn't be very kind. Um, do you want to give your, your deeming disclosure? Well, yes. The information that we're presenting on this educational program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the reliability or completeness of said information. And it is literally said information. It isn't written information. So right. I think it's cool. Yeah. So, and we give no guarantee or warranty as to the completeness of unsaid information. We also really? give no guarantee or warranty as to the completeness of said information. So there's no well, guarantees I, or warranties about anything. I will warranty and guarantee the incompleteness of any information unsaid. Any unsaid information will be unwarranted as being uh, completely invalid. The last thing to tell you is that we do not pay for this airtime. We pay 
nothing for the airtime. We're also not paid for the airtime. So it is not a paid commercial program. Many financial radio programs are just paid time. We're not selling anything. Hopefully, we're just trying to give education. Uh, we There is well, a minor quid pro quo. We do buy advertising on the station for this radio program. But we are trying to sell something. The studio also buys advertising on their own radio station for our radio show. Uh, what what are we trying to sell? Us. Us? We're selling spaghetti. Yeah. Right. No. We're basically saying that a lot of our clients listen to this radio program. Yeah. And it's a nice way to have a one-way conversation with our clients. They seem to like it, so we keep doing it. There, There's and, obviously yeah. some mental issues with our clientele that they will sit and listen to these two bald guys ramble on about things that are just digital in most respects. Uh, but, hey, it works. Um, we have some questions from Inquisitor John. Uh, our most faithful uh, questioner is becoming quite famous for his ongoing questioning of us in a good way. Um, John the Inquisitor. Inquisitor John. First, he's welcoming us back. We, we took last weekend off and enjoyed the Thanksgiving weekend with our families, and that was quite pleasant. Thank you for allowing us to um, put recordings of ourselves talking to you on the air last, last week. Uh, so he says, welcome back. In addition to bonds, what other sources of debt do businesses tap and what considerations do they use to make these choices? Uh, and he's got a picture of the Wall Street Journal's paper form sent to us digitally. And uh, the question is, companies face dilemma on refinancing maturing debt. A lot of companies have debt out there that they financed and it's coming due. Usually business debt comes in what's called a balloon or a maturity. So if, if you're a small business owner, you realize that most banks will say you've got a 15-year uh, loan that's amortized for 30 years and it will balloon in 15, which is, for, for most people, that's just a bunch of gobbledygook with a balloon, which is a child's toy in the middle of it. What it means is that it's all the principal is due at the time of the maturity of the note. And as those come up, a lot of times they're refinanced. And that's been a pretty common pastime over the last decade or so because we've had such low interest rates. Well, interest rates aren't so low anymore. And companies are having this debt coming due and they've got to do some refinancing. So his question is, how do they do that? Where are they going? You, I mean, a big company can obviously go right back to the bond market and say, well, we'll do a new bond issuance to pay off the other one. Um, they can also go to the bank, just like you, and get a loan. Now, it's a bigger loan, and the bank has to look it over and everything. Um, they can go to what's called the, uh, the corporate paper market which is uh, getting loans from other corporations or from banks for income that you're about to have in the next few weeks to pay them back immediately. Um, they can get a loan from a big private enterprise. So if we think about how Elon Musk bought Twitter, uh, there was not a big bond issuance. He raised money in loans and in investment 
uh, from private people. And he said, I'll give you whatever the interest rate is. We don't know what those interest rates are because Twitter's become private. So what, what this comes down to is loans are available from many sources. And what we saw in the crypto market over the last several weeks is a kind of a pulling back of the veil of how much the loaning world is everywhere. Um, and this kind of dovetails nicely into uh, John's next question, which is crypto oversight. And he has a question about who's going to take over the regulation. And there's articles and he says, is it the Agriculture Commission? Is it the SEC? Is it the Chicago, uh, the Com Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the Chicago Board of Exchange? Who's going to be regulating crypto? And uh, this kind of, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a step back and look at it as a bigger picture. The word crypto doesn't have a good definition. It has come to mean any digital asset. And that's really not what crypto originally was. The original crypto, Bitcoin, the white paper would award the token for solving a puzzle which allowed you to encrypt a block of ledgers, a like a ledger book. You got to encrypt it. You won the prize. Here you go. This is your encryption prize. Well, then we come forward to places like FTX and Crypto.com and Binance and the, the big exchanges, uh, Coinbase, uh, they, they issue tokens that have nothing to do with your obligation to encrypt a block or anything else. They're just digital tokens that are being called crypto. And the reality is that they're private banking. Um, it's not really currency it's more like a commodity but when you're giving commodity loans to people if you're loaning somebody corn and they owe you more corn back at the end of it or you're loaning them corn and they have to pay you in dollars this is what's going on in the crypto market right now it's not really crypto anymore it's just ious to each other based on credits held at their institution that aren't really backed by dollars but they claim to so what does that sound like to me? It sounds like private banking. Uh, there are certain types of what we're dubbing crypto that are truly securities and that they're being, um, the value of them is based on the efforts of someone else rather than efforts of you. It's not just a commodity where you buy it and the only reason it goes up is if somebody buys it for more than you bought it for. There are uh, there are, let's put the air quotes around crypto, that are linked to the dollar. Well, how did that happen? Who's linking it to the dollar? Well, it's a third party. It's, a, it's another group of people. And that falls under the securities definition, the, the Howey definition that the Securities and Exchange uses, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. What does it mean? If you own something that other people own a part of as well, and you intend to make a profit on it, you're at least attempting to. And the people, the other people in the organization are as well. And you have a group of people that you're depending on for that profit. Their efforts go into making the profit. That's called a security. It's like owning a business. Um, if you own something that the only reason why it goes up is because someone else is going to buy it for more. There's nobody involved in trying to produce a profit out of it. It is simply a, 
an item that's being bought and sold, like gold or silver or corn, once the corn is produced, you might say that somebody's silo is going to be what allows you to make a profit on it. But it's just a storage facility, and it might have some extra ability to keep rats out and and bugs out and so on. So it's not really considered a security. It's a commodity. If you're buying and selling corn, the reason why you should make a profit is because you know somebody else's market will pay you more than the market you bought it from. That's called arbitrage, moving from one place to another because you know about a better place to sell. Uh, And you can do that on the small scale. As a farmer, for instance, um, I know people who have uh, cattle and we had a big drought in Texas uh, over the last year. And so they would drive up north all the way up to Canada and come back with bales and bales of hay. Well, that was a, you know, them moving from the item from the Canadian market to our market and making a profit on that. There was an effort involved. And if somebody bought into that, that was a security. But the hay itself is a commodity. This is really weird. Ownership is strange. When you give someone else the responsibility of making the profit for you, that becomes ownership of a security. And that's pretty clearly under the purview of the SEC. The Securities and Exchange Commission, they were given this right in 1934 to say, find out the securities and regulate them to make sure people aren't selling 140% of their company or 140% of fill in the blank. Okay. In the efforts to look at this and everybody's talking about who's going to regulate it, we don't know that it's going to be regulated yet. I tend to think that it, it, I mean, regulation tends to come after massive implosions and people lose a bunch of money. Well, we've just had that, but was it enough money to cause the regulators to be given the rights by the investors to regulate it? And let me kind of give you an example. Somebody buys crypto and somebody hacks them and takes all their money. They go to the law enforcement and law enforcement, local law enforcement says, I don't know. I I have no idea what to do with this. So they go to the FBI and the FBI goes, wait a minute, you bought this intentionally for being anonymous and you want us to track down the anonymous people that you were doing business with and the anonymous people that hacked you. Well, okay, it is theft. We'll look into it. But at some point, they're going to need more tools than they have available to regulate this, to find out who owns what, to, to track down who stole it. And that takes the owners of crypto allowing the regulators to do it. Enough of them voting to say, yes, regulate this industry. That takes a big chunk of loss. You, you have something to add here? I really don't think it's ever going to get regulated except to the degree that banks or securities firms that are regulated already hold it. I don't think it's good for for some of the reasons you just stated the people that would have to cooperate in order for it to be regulated are people who wish to remain anonymous. Yeah. And they're not going to, they're not, I mean the, the primary, that was a fascinating thing. Uh, I read an article. I don't, I can't cite the exact article, but the only use currency use of cryptocurrency of any significance appears to be the illegal transfer of money to avoid um, launder, to launder drug money or something like that. But that's so what it looks like right now. Last yeah. year at this time, 
I went to a conference and they were, and this is, this is a Wall Street conference, not a crypto conference. And they're talking about how you can uh, sell your security at one firm, an actual bunch of stocks, um, buy some crypto with it, and transfer that crypto to another location, and then sell the crypto and have the money immediately. Where often it may take two weeks to get your money transferred from one traditional institution to another. So that kind of imploded with the currency, I mean, sorry, the exchange disruptions that we've seen. FTX is just the latest and, and biggest so far. But we've had big hacks and we've had exchanges go down. And that causes the more traditional folks to not want to put their money into it. To transfer it as a quick, instantaneous transfer works until you lose 50% on the transfer. Then people don't do it anymore. And, and that's the reality is that the people that can afford to lose money on the transfer are the people that are laundering the money because they got it from illicit sources. Right. And those folks are not going to volunteer to be regulated. However, the things that are linked to the dollar, the stable coins, those are going to be regulated. No doubt about it. Because well, those are securities. Those are trying to be banks and all the advertising around them is about how safe they are. So this well, is drawing non-crypto type investors to them. This is what I mean. I think to the degree that, that blockchain, which is the basis of cryptocurrency, is used in a regulated industry like the banks or the right. security industry. Yes, it's it's got to be regulated as a tool. I frankly don't think crypto coins per se will ever be a currency. Uh, now, eventually, it's entirely possible, and I think eventually, certainly will happen. The Chinese are experimenting with it already, although just that the fact that they're experimenting doesn't mean anything. You're talking about a digital currency rather than a cryptocurrency? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, well, I agree form, with that. A form of cryptocurrency, in essence, regulated and run by the, uh, by the Federal Reserve. No, it's not a cryptocurrency. we got to make that clear. <laughs> I have to come out and, and really firmly put my feet down okay, on this. Okay, digital currency. It's a I got digital you. currency. It is not right. being awarded for encrypting anything. Okay, what I mean by that is a blockchain exchange denominated in dollars, which is a form of, which comes out of the same basis as cryptocurrency, uh, certainly would be regulated, but regulated as a tool, not as a yeah. speculative, not as a speculative device. It's kind of like, it's kind of like asking to say a lot of people, let's just say instead of crypto, we, we've used it, you've used this term before, beanie babies. Yeah. The fact that people lost a lot of money in beanie babies, uh, fortunately, there was never a, uh, an organization that set up said, we'll take your beanie babies and make loans against it and pay you 6% on your beanie babies. There were. Oh, they well, were just okay. very short lived institutions. <laughs> they do that with shoes too. Nike is okay. famous for having Nike exchanges. The, the, okay. Like a, an organization designed to buy and sell shoes to make a market in a shoe collectible market. Well, I don't think we need the SEC or the CFTC or anybody else to regulate that. And I think basically the fact, it, the, maybe, I guess the point is it's, it's, very, it's closer to interstate gambling than it is to a currency that needs to be regulated. Right. And, and I agree with that. It, the, the concept behind... Let me kind of approach this a different way. 
the digital currency. We already have a digital currency, by the way. For those of mm-hmm. you that are saying, we, we should avoid digital currency, that's the digital currency that we have is every bank has its own version of digital currency that it links to the dollar. If you're at Wells Fargo, if you're at uh, USAA or Bank of America, Citigroup, it doesn't matter what bank you're using. If you transfer money from one of your accounts at that bank to another account at the same bank, how, how long does it take to transfer? It just does it. It's there. You moved it and it's, it's done. Well, how did they do that? Well, they know that the money was in that account because they have an ID on that number on each penny. They have an ID number for it that says this penny is an individual unique penny and each dollar is an individual unique dollar. And when it transferred from this account to that account, they could verify that those individual unique monies moved all at once. Now, when you try to move it from Wells Fargo to Bank of America, they have different numbers for each individual unique penny. They have their own identifiers at Bank of America. Wells Fargo has their own identifiers. What the Federal Reserve is talking about doing is making a universal identifier digitally for every piece of currency, very much like what they do on paper currency, the little serial number. Each one is individual. It can be tracked if you want. Um, That is what digital currency will be, is just a universal standard of the uniqueness of each dollar. Right now, we're depending on each bank to account for that correctly, which is why you have to wait the two weeks when you transfer $280,000 from Wells Fargo to Bank of America. Bank of America wants to make sure that Wells Fargo actually had the money before they allow you to take it out and use it for something. Once we have a unique identifier for that money that the Federal Reserve has given it its, its label, when it moves, they know it's there. They know it's moved and it's, it's instantaneous. They're, they're experimenting with that in India and in China. They're kind of going a little early because really what has to happen, the Federal Reserve has to coordinate with every place that holds a digital representation of money, whether that's the entire MasterCard network or Visa or Discover or each individual bank Each dollar has to be identified. Now, when we do audits of banks, when the Federal Reserve goes out and does a stress test and they say, how much money do you have on hand? They trust the auditing because it's been triple audited and third-party people coming in to make sure that the money actually exists where it says. That'll be a lot easier when it has an an identifier on each of the dollars, but the Federal Reserve has to coordinate that. So we'd rather take a while to get that done The scary thing about this is only that it is being dual labeled with the crypto thing because crypto are digital. Crypto is also totally not backed by anything else while the U.S. dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government and by the Federal Reserve. So it's got multiple large institutions with deep, deep pockets whose only job it is is to back up that currency Versus the crypto world, which, yeah, <laughs> deep pockets, maybe not. Uh, it, it, their, their pockets are as imaginary as what's in them. So that, that is the deal, is that we all actually have to believe in the currency for it to work. 
in crypto is losing a lot of the belief factor. It's really hard for me to believe that crypto is going to be stable uh, as we move from one place to another with it, where the U.S. dollar is holding up really well internationally at the same time. So not, not to mention a risk factor that you brought up early in the life of the, the crypto story that's very real. Once quantum computing really gets rolling, yeah. the, the fact that the encrypted, the, the, what makes a crypto coin valuable is it's unique and nobody else can break it once you have it, except for the fact, because it's, it's encrypted, yeah. except for the fact that if you have a fast enough computer, you can decrypt the encryption and duplicate it. Yeah. And quantum, eventually, computers will get fast enough It'll happen. It's very much like the fact that you mentioned something else that's very real. And, it, and this has happened before in history, by the way. There are asteroids that are pretty much solid gold. Yep. And eventually, Elon Musk or somebody will capture one of those asteroids. And when that happens, the price of gold will collapse. Now, why I say, did I say that happened in history? Have we captured asteroids before? No. We have. But the, the <laughs> price of gold in Europe was very stable for a long time until the Spanish in the New World discovered that the Incans had been uh, collecting gold. The Incans and the Mayans had been collecting gold for a long time, and they began to collect the gold from the Incans and the Mayans after killing them, of course, and um, ship it back to Spain. And suddenly, Europe was awash with gold, and the price of gold plummeted about 90% and never recovered. Yeah, and we can look at the fact that it's never recovered. And the way we can measure that, by the way, is when we measure, you know, there's no currency that exists that's the same as it was back then. But people still exist. And they do? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And if you look at things to say how much as far as the uh, amount of gold would it take to buy a custom tailored set of clothing to go and meet a significant royal person in the uh, 1600s. And you compare that to today, how much gold would it take to get a custom tailored suit and gown to go meet the president? And what you find is it takes a lot less gold or a lot more gold to buy the same suit today than it did back then. Um, the, the gold was worth a lot more in comparison to the amount of time and effort that went into things. So it, it, when we look at things like that or a, the value of it, an extremely exquisitely cooked meal, when you compare those in gold, we can see the value of gold has never recovered to what it was in the 1600s and uh, in, in the 1500s. So that gold can be purchased by other people at some point, maybe, um, um, or, or other things. Uh, I said I was going to talk about dogs this hour. Um, and from a strictly behavioral standpoint, what does that have to do with the economy? Last hour, we talked about entrenched inflation and bonuses being looked at as part of the pay. And if you don't get the bonus when you got it for the last three years, it's like a pay cut. Um, there are Buddhists. Para, para, uh, parables as parables as well as Christian parables about um, 
wine harvests and people being hired at the beginning of the day for a for an agreed upon price and then hiring more people at the at the middle part of the day and paying them the same price the same price that the other people got for working the whole day the second group got the same price for working half a day and buddha and jesus both said the same thing ignore that stuff just uh, concentrate on what you agreed upon and be happy with what your agreement was. Why was it something that was held deeply in these philosophical statements? Uh, it is universal across humanity. Um, there was a massive study done that has been repeated and done on a massive scale multiple times with dogs. And it started out with golden retrievers in uh, the early 21st century. Uh, but it's gone to other types of dogs. The requirement is that the dogs need to be able to shake hands or shake paw on request 100% of the time. So you say shake, they shake. And they separate these dogs out into control groups and to experiment groups. The control groups are just, they're treating the dog the same way they did before the experiment. The dog is told to shake and the dog shakes. They either get a treat or they don't get a treat. Uh, in two groups. One group is you get a treat. The other group, you don't get a treat. The end of the experiment, both of those sets of dogs are still shaking paws. Okay. hundred percent of the time. Then you take another group or two groups and put them all together. So you have a room full of dogs and people and you have them through a two week experiment where one group is Everybody's given treats all the time. Another group, everybody's not given treats all the time. And then the third group, and this is the scary one, treats are given at random. The first two groups, treats are given all the time. Treats are given none of the time. At the end of the experiment, all the dogs still shake paws 100% of the time. That last group where all the dogs are in the same room and they're randomly given treats for shaking paws. Only about 60% of the dogs maintain the ability to shake paws at the end of the two-week experiment. Now, you can draw conclusions on that. You're doing your trick. You get a treat. You see your buddy doesn't get a treat. The other dog right next to you didn't get a treat. Or I didn't get a treat, and that dog did. At the end of this, the only difference in the experiment is that it's random and it's visible to the other dogs. That's difficult because what it means is that your own value, your own interpretation of what you're worth needs a comparison all the time. Even if you've agreed in advance to say, this is what I want to get. If you find out that you've been working at a corporation for five years and you're in charge of your small unit there, there's six people in there in that group. And you find out that the newest hire in the group that works for you is getting paid more than you are. How does that make you feel? There's a universal response to that. Everybody hates that. It doesn't matter that you agreed with your employer one-on-one -on -one what your pay would be. And so did this other person. The fact that they've been there less time and they have less superiority, they are less uh, seniority, whatever it is. Why should they get paid more than me? And that's part of entrenched inflation. If you're hiring somebody right now as an employer, it's harder to hire people. You may have to hire them at more money 
And then your other employees find out about it somehow and they go, well, I want more money too. Whoa. Well, now your expenses just went way up when you're just trying to fill one position. You can increase your budget expenses by 30 or 40% very quickly by hiring one person that was only supposed to increase your budget by 2%. So there's a problem there, deep under underlying all of our behavior. And it's true with dogs. It's really easy for that to get entrenched to say, just because this person got paid more, I should get paid more. And I don't know the correct response to how you should feel. I know what Buddha said and what Jesus said. And they said, forget about what other people are getting paid. Worry about what you're getting paid and what you agreed upon. That certainly is a uh, emotionally and behaviorally more healthy approach, but it doesn't stop us from feeling bad initially. Uh, I know that's a weird statement to come at. There's a, there are laws in California and several other states have picked up New York and so on that are saying you have to post the wages for the hiree in the advertisement. Uh, and then there's all this kerfluffle and scandal because people are, are, the corporations are posting extreme ranges from $10 to $40 an hour for this position. So basically, they're just skirting it by saying it's going to depend on the person. And that's the reality of the world is it's going to depend on the person. As long as it's hard to hire people, wages are going to go up and you can ask for more wages and you'll probably have to get it because nobody wants to hire somebody else. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized uh, for our individualized clients investment advice and portfolio management, and you can reach us uh, locally. We have voicemail waiting on the weekends, but real life people during the week, no phone tree at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com if you prefer, where you can read our newsletters, sign up for our newsletter, or read what they said years ago to see if how accurate we were. Uh, there are Radio program is there as well, and you can find the podcast anywhere that podcasts are provided. You can contact us through our contact form or directly through email at jeff at tpwc.com and or jake at tpwc.com. And we actually read those things. Strange, I know. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening to uh, two bald, boring men talk about finance. And till next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.